Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you to the Bible line. If you're new with us today, this is a call-in talk show where if you have specific questions that relate to the Word of God, maybe a specific challenge you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on or some ministry issue, this is an opportunity for us to call and dialogue. The number, again, locally is 525-1859, 525-1859, area code 843. And we also have a toll-free number for those listening outside of South Carolina. That number is 877-WAGP-980, 877-WAGP-980. Or if it's more convenient for you, you can email us here directly into the studio and uh, email questions pop up on the screen every week. And that email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. When you call, you can go on the air live or if you're more comfortable, you can simply remain totally anonymous and dictate your question. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've got a number of questions already, so let's get to them right now. A listener writes, this morning my nine-year-old daughter asked me why God loved Jacob and not Esau. She went on to describe the different characters of the brothers, Jacob being a deceiver and a cheater, yet Esau seemed to be more obedient and respectful to his parents. She asked, why didn't God forgive Esau, and why does the Bible say God loved Jacob and hated Esau? How can God hate anyone? Well, that's a great question for a nine-year-old to ask, but it tells me you're daughter is extremely perceptive and uh, listening to God's word and has a heart to grow and to understand what God says. Uh, The genesis of this question is found in the book of Genesis, and it goes back to Genesis 25 when Rebecca is pregnant with twins, and she is um, barren, and then the Lord uh, brings her two babies, and she's trying to understand the war in the womb, and God gives her a divine sonogram. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So God speaks of two peoples, the people who will descend from Jacob and those who will descend from Esau, known as the Edomites. And so when he's born, his name was called Edom. It means red. He was called red not only because of the color of his skin, but also because of his love and his lust for that red stew. And so he was nicknamed red, so to speak, and 
had kind of a double entendre as to uh, its application in Esau's life. So later on, down the corridors of time, uh, God deals with Esau. In this verse that you uh, quoted, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated, uh, that's initially found in the book of Malachi. So let me turn to Malachi chapter 1 for just a second. Uh, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And of course, uh, this same verse, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, a part of it brought together in the Septuagint and then quoted in the book of Romans chapter 9, is coming here from the book of Malachi chapter 1. And this thought goes all the way back to Genesis 25. There's two nations, two peoples that come from Rebekah's womb, the Edomites and the Hebrew people. And so when God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, please understand that that's a Hebraism, a Hebraism or an idiom, we might say, a a figure of speech that is used to describe a comparative love that God has for two people. If you think about it, it's used that way, even in the book of Genesis. Let me go back to Genesis here for a second. If I recall, it's in Genesis 29. Uh, Yeah, here it is. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. Now, the word unloved here, if you have a translation like the New American Standard, usually when there is some special play on words or they want to give you a more literal rendering, they'll carry out to the margin. The Hebrew text literally reads in Genesis twenty-nine thirty-one. now the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Again, it's a Hebraism here. It, it speaks of comparison. Uh, that by comparison, uh, Jacob loved uh, uh, Rachel so much, by comparison, he loved her less, or you could say he hated her. Didn't literally hate her, but it's used in this sense as well by the Lord Jesus in Luke 14. Again, he uh, is a Jew. He speaks Aramaic. He speaks Hebrew. I have no doubt he spoke Greek like the Apostle Paul, who spoke all three languages. And in Luke 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he could not be my disciple. Is Jesus contradicting what he taught elsewhere, that we should love and honor our parents? Of course not. Again, this is a Hebraism, an idiom, a figure of speech, so to speak, that you are, by comparison— of your love for Jesus Christ, it almost looks like hatred. That is that a first allegiance is the Lord Jesus above all else in your heart. In the parallel text in Matthew ten twenty seven, he doesn't use the Hebraism, but on a different occasion, while he doesn't use this idiom, this figure of speech, he gives a plain statement without it, but the truth is the same. In um, Matthew chapter 10, in verse 37, when again he is speaking on the meaning and cost of discipleship, 
he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy than me of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, it's a comparative statement of uh, of love. Um, so when you come to the book of Hebrews, uh, let me go to Hebrews now, chapter 10. I know this is a long answer, or Hebrews 12. It's a long answer, but again, uh, I think it, I hope, addresses your question. Uh, when the Lord... Uh, gives a commentary on Esau's life. Uh, well, to pick it up in the flow of context, let me read beginning in Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men in the sanctification <laughs> without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That's what bitterness does. It has a it has a way of defiling not just you but other people. Bitterness uh, defiles other folks, and it's like a it's like a disease. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So here is a guy who sold his birthright for a single meal. He loved food more than he loved the things of God. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears. And so once again, uh, the Lord looked at Esau's life. He looked out in the corridors of time. And before they had done anything good or bad, Romans 9 teaches. And let me see if I can pull these texts all together. Um, before, he, before he had done anything good or bad, that God's uh, purpose might stand, the, the Bible quoting Malachi in uh, Romans 9 says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Let, let me read it to you. It says, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, and again, the context of this quote is from Malachi 1, where God is answering the questions of the Jewish people. God, do you really love us? I mean, how, how can you say you really love us? And God says, well, just think for a second. I chose you, Israel, over Edom. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So God in his grace looked past the deeds of Jacob. You note this young nine-year-old that, yeah, it seemed like in some ways Jacob was a rascal, and he was. He was a conniver of sorts. His his name, Yaakov, means uh, conniver, deceiver, a rip-off artist. Um, and that's why God in the end ends up changing his name to Yitzrael, a prince with God. And uh, he's changed in character. But God looked uh, in his grace past his deeds and he saw his desires. Uh, God could look down the corridors of time and see that Jacob, in essence, had a heart for God. He didn't choose Jacob for what he was, but for what he would become. And in his foreknowledge, God knew that Jacob had a heart for the things of Almighty God. And on that basis, the Lord chose him. So when it says Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, 
God cared about Esau. God wanted Esau to repent. Uh, He found no repentance, even though he sought it with tears, because if you study the kind of change of mind he wanted, he didn't want to change his mind over sin. Genesis uh, 27 indicates he wanted Isaac to change his mind over the blessing. But Isaac said, no, what's been done has been done. How many pins does it take to pop a balloon? Only one. And you can reach a point where you say no to God long enough, you can cross a line that you cannot cross back over. And that's what Esau did. And so when God gives a summary of his life, he calls him a godless man in Hebrews 12. So again, before they had done anything good or bad, God made a choice because God saw ultimately how they would respond to his prevenient grace. And he saw that Esau would not respond. He saw that Jacob would respond. So Jacob becomes the nation the people that God chooses over that of the Edomites. Anyway, very challenging question, and uh, you might want to listen to, it would be, let's see, I think I preached two sermons in Genesis 25. The second sermon on Genesis 25, where I spent an hour on this issue. You can uh, go online. Those are posted at Community Bible Church's website. It will bring you to iTunes. Download the sermon on Genesis 25, and it will walk you through some of these texts, and I think uh, you'll you'll be helped from it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and continue since it's youth day on (laughs) Bible Line today. We have a five-year-old listener that would like to know what day were bugs created on, and did God create tornadoes and hurricanes? Well, uh, in terms of tornadoes and hurricanes, uh, they are a result of the fall that came on the universe. Uh, God allowed um, the world to fall when creation fell. All the world fell with it, and that's not by accident. Um, God makes it very, very clear in Romans 8 that all of creation groans and moans, looking forward to the time when, when God redeems and finishes the salvation of man. He will reinstate creation back to its original look and luster. What you look at today, though the heavens declare the glory of God, doesn't even begin to picture the magnificence uh, that the world was like back in the days of Eden. And so it really is an expression of God's grace. When man fell, all the world fell with it. And um, when um, he did this, he put man on notice that there's a problem, that things are not the way they should be that man needs to repent and get his life right with the living God. So don't be discouraged when you see a tornado or a hurricane. As devastating as they are, understand that they are, in essence, an expression of God's grace. They happened because the universe falls. Now, does God up in heaven push a button and say, three tornadoes uh, this week to South Carolina. Let's pull a hurricane off to the African coast. Well, again, I think God allows things to happen because of the creation that we uh, live in, this creation that uh, has fallen, and this creation that uh, has been put on notice. And so, again, um, don't be discouraged by it. I'm not saying that God can't ever push a button. I think maybe a better way to look at it based on passages like Psalm 80 is that God very often keeps peoples from certain problems. 
if if God's just let all of nature have its way, I think the world would be a lot worse than it is. But God, when a nation turns from him, he, he puts some holes in the hedges and he lets problems arise that they might have otherwise have been spared from. And this is why when you come to the end of the age, uh, the Lord Jesus speaks of all the turmoil that will take place in the heavens and even in the seas. Uh, It's not by accident that the Lord says, um, and when there will be signs in the, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and upon the earth, dismay among nations uh, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. Things like tsunamis and things like this, these are, you know, as they increase that we've always had famines and tornadoes and hurricanes. As we move to the end of the age, Jesus predicts that it will be like a woman in childbirth, you know, where the labor pains increase in intensity and frequency. Uh, The intensity and frequency of natural disasters will occur. Why? Because the nations of the world will be turning away from God. Uh, More and more sin will show itself, will become more and more the world like the days of Noah. And so God's going to allow holes in the hedge and things that he is keeping us from in this fallen creation, he's going to let happen in his sovereignty. And again, it's an expression of his grace uh, because he loves man and wants people to repent and to get right with him. Um, Let's see, the other half of your question, insects and things like that, uh, it says, uh, read Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, and you'll get your answer on the fifth day. Let's go to our next question. All right, our next caller would like to know, what is the best way to approach a homosexual sibling, making sure to show the love of Christ, but yet letting them know this lifestyle is a sin and displeasing to God? This caller is not sure his sibling is truly a Christian. Well, um... Again, you know, God is able to redeem any set of circumstances in any kind of sinful lifestyle that people find themselves in. Very often, you know, we point to people who are living in the homosexual lifestyle because in many ways it is a more obnoxious sin. I don't believe in mortal slash venial sins, but I do believe that there are some sins that carry greater consequences And God doesn't call every sin in the Bible an abomination. But understand, it's not the amount of sin that condemns you or the intensity of the sin. It's the fact of sin. That's why James 2.10 says, if you've sinned in one point of the law, it's like you've broken every commandment in the law. You're, You're guilty of all. But it is true that God calls homosexuality an abomination. And what heterosexuals tend to do is they they point the finger at homosexual people when they themselves are living in uh, a lifestyle of fornication and adultery. And we say, well, he's lost because he's a homosexual. Well, please understand what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because we can easily deceive ourselves. And that's the nature of deception. When people are deceived, they often don't know they are deceived. And so God says, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't think otherwise yourself. And then he gives the list. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. So let's be careful when we point the finger at homosexuals that we also point the finger at heterosexuals who are also guilty of lifestyle of fornication or adultery. Now, if a person's lifestyle is drunkenness, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, then they are giving the marks of an unbeliever. Again, lifestyle. Could a saved heterosexual fall into adultery? Of course. Could a saved heterosexual fornicate, commit premarital sex? Of course. Could a former homosexual slide back into a homosexual act? Of course. Uh, Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that the temptation to commit some sin is instantly dissolved. And sometimes when people have engaged in a certain type of sin, the temptation to go into that sin is indeed great. And it's real. So if someone has abused drugs and alcohol versus someone who is not, the temptation for them as a saved person to go back and to use alcohol or drugs may be greater than someone who's never touched them. But again, if your lifestyle is marked, by a particular sin, especially these that are of a very um, grotesque nature, God says, well, you need to seriously look and see whether your conversion is real. Paul will say to the Corinthians, who was who were very, you know, uh, testy in a lot of areas, uh, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. In Galatians 5, he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, those who live like this, you could render it, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Can a Christian fall into these? Of course. That's why he's exhorting in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit that you may not carry out the desire of the flesh. But he's saying if this is your continual habitual lifestyle, then you have proof positive that you will not inherit the kingdom of God because you've not yet truly been born again. For he will say in the same breath in Galatians 5.24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Um, And so back in 1 Corinthians 6, when he gives this list, don't you know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And in the list he includes fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate. Effeminate is a specialized Greek word that refers to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. In homosexual relationships, there's male-female partners. It's true with lesbians. It's true with gay men. Um, You know, one takes the male role, the other takes the female role, so to speak. Both are distorted roles because it's a distortion for a man to lie with a man and for a woman to lie with a woman. Um, In either case, He tells us that people who live like this have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, but there's promise in the next verse, and this is the promise I would hold out to your relative. And such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God redeemed you, he saved you, he delivered you. Now, again, with that deliverance, it doesn't mean the temptation will be dissolved. Listen, I've married former homosexuals to heterosexuals. God saved them. He's restored the natural function. Some of them may still feel from time to time temptation in that area. The temptation is not sin. It's what you decide to do with the temptation that becomes sin. So to really be loving to your relative whom you think is gay, if they're in a gay lifestyle, then if that's their lifestyle, their way of life, and they have not come under the discipline of God Almighty, then again, it's proof positive that they've never really been converted. Uh, a, A Christian who falls into any kind of sin, if they refuse to repent and respond to the prompting and the grieving of the Spirit of God within them, they will meet God in the woodshed. Uh, God will discipline them. If there's no discipline, it's uh, proof positive. Hebrews chapter 12 says that you're illegitimate and not a true son. But someone who is born again will experience the discipline of God. And again, if this is someone's lifestyle, it's uh, evidence that there's been no real conversion. So I hope that helps to get you started. Uh, Let's go to our next question. Indeed, a caller would like you to answer the following. Is it a lack of faith to go to the doctor for treatment of a disease like cancer or a procedure like heart surgery, or should we just trust in God for the healing of our body? Well, it's really an excellent, excellent question. Uh, There are some people who link um, the atonement the death of Christ to the healing of all disease. And so they take the verse in Isaiah, by his stripes you are healed, and they assume that just as by faith you receive forgiveness of sin, equally by faith you receive uh, healing from sickness. And I think they fail to really misunderstand the meaning of the atonement and the divine commentary that God gives us. Um, In Isaiah 53, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore. Uh, The Hebrew could be translated, Our sicknesses he himself bore, and our sorrows, or you could translate it, Our pains he carried. And in the Old English, it's done that way because the nuance in the Old English carried a slightly different meaning than it does today. He's talking about grief and sorrow. He's talking about sin being smitten of God because in the Hebrew parallelism where he defines the term griefs and sorrows or in the Old King James sickness and pain, it says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's speaking here in the original context of Jesus not coming to die for sickness, but Jesus coming to die for sin. And what's really interesting is that sometimes the Holy Spirit of God will give us divine commentary on how we should understand a passage of Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit will sometimes quote or reference a passage in the Old Testament in the New Testament. And so he does indeed uh, in First Peter, where he speaks of uh, what the Lord Jesus did. And when Peter references back to Isaiah chapter 53, 
he makes it very clear that the the context is not a physical sickness, but the context truly is indeed uh, sin. Sin that Messiah, sin that Messiah would ultimately die and shed his blood for. And so in 1 Peter 2, uh, 24 and 25, well, let me just back it up to verse 23. It's speaking of Jesus on the cross who never committed any sin. No deceit was not even found in his mouth. And that's significant because, again, the tongue is tied to the heart, and the heart of Jesus is sinful. And so while he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And so that phrase that is found in... Uh, Isaiah 53, 5, where again, he has just spoken of our griefs and our sorrows, that is our pain and our sicknesses, which is then paralleled in the next verse to refer to our transgressions, our sin that he was crushed for. And so then when he says in Isaiah 53, 5, and by his scourging, we are healed, the healing he's talking about is not physical in nature. But the healing he's talking about is spiritual in nature. Now, it is true there's ultimately healing in the atonement and that someday you will get a resurrected body. And in heaven, there is no pain or sickness. But that's not what he's speaking about in Isaiah 53. And we know so by divine commentary in 1 Peter 2, not to mention the context of Isaiah clearly indicates that very truth. So does... um, so what's the role of medicine? Well, there is a role for medicine in our day. Uh, when Jesus spoke of the um, Good Samaritan who uh, passed uh, that individual on the ro- road, that Good Samaritan, a uh, despised race of people, uh, took the person and he poured wine on his wounds as an antiseptic. Alcohol kills germs. Uh, Then he sealed it with oil. So he used medical means, and of course the Lord praised him for that, not to mention he dug into his own pocket and made sure that he had a place to stay until he recovered from the beating. So Jesus never uses error to teach truth. God's not against medicine. That's why Paul can say to Timothy, why don't you take a um, little wine for your frequent illness or ailments? Timothy probably was doing what John the Baptist did, never wanted to take wine to his lips. And as a traveling missionary and church planner of sorts, he would have been in places where he would have taken of the water and could have easily gotten sick. And so what they typically did in first century history is they would add a little wine to the water. It would kill the germs and bacteria and make it safe to drink. And missionaries used to do this as less than 100 years ago. They would carry little... Uh, wine satchels with them, wine skins, and they would squirt it into the water and it would kill the bacteria. I still go to places in Eastern Europe where if I drink the water, myself or any American will get sick. Why? Because the water quality is so poor and it will give you the runs and other awful things. So you uh, either drink bottled water or you boil the water or you could, I suppose, add a little bit of alcohol to it and it would kill the bacteria. That's what was in view. God's not against medicine. Uh, When the Lord speaks of two people, uh, King Asa, uh, if you remember King Asa, sought the physicians without seeking the Lord. 
And God was really displeased because he sought medicine without seeking God. And that's what some Christians do today. They have some kind of sickness. They don't pray about it. They just go to the doctor and say, give me a prescription, give me the pill. And they're, they're, they look only to the pill and not to the Lord God. And that, that's an evil thing. God doesn't like that when you leave him out of any equation in your life. On the other side of things, if you remember Hezekiah, remember when Hezekiah got sick and um, he was going to die and uh, he humbled himself before the Lord and and God uh, responded to his prayer and he, he sent the uh, prophet Isaiah and uh, Isaiah said, hey, I've got good news for you. Uh, God's going to heal you uh, because you've sought him. He He's seen your humility. In fact, he's going to extend your life uh Another uh, 15 years. Wow. He was just uh, thrilled. He was elated that God would be so merciful to him and, and show him such kindness. And then, if you remember, after God said that, um, Isaiah uh, took um, uh, a, a medical means and said, here, put this on your sores, and, and God healed him. So God healed him, but he used medical means in which to accomplish it. So God would have us seek him and sometimes seek the physician as well. Uh, again, Jesus never uses uh, error in which to teach truth. There's medical illusions throughout his own sayings. It's not those who are well, he said, who need a physician, but those that are sick. If Jesus was against physicians, he couldn't even make such a statement. So the health, wealth, prosperity theology of our day is a gross distortion of Scripture. It's untrue. If you're sick, seek the Lord, and in the process, you may need to seek a doctor, but don't seek a doctor to the exclusion of seeking the Lord, or you'll be guilty of what Asa did. Do what King Hezekiah did. You can read both accounts in the Kings. Great question. Let's go to our next one. All right. Patrick from West Newton, Pennsylvania, would like to know, uh, he writes, I have two children, seven and nine. My wife and I live and often talk of the imminent return of the Lord. We want our children to be prepared to stand for God and against the world system. I'm concerned that the kids may become pessimistic or even depressed as they become more aware of the terrible things happening in the world. How should we help them to trust that God is in control no matter what? Well, it is a great question, and we should never, um, in discussing the second coming of Christ in the reality of what the last days will look like, ever... um, should we ever diminish human responsibility or a godly perspective in the midst of it? So, yeah, we we are living in evil days, and these may indeed be the last of the last days before Jesus comes. We do know, the Scripture prophesies it, that there's coming a time in human history when it will be like the days of Noah. Um, There will be days of anarchy, days of immorality, and Jesus also likened it to the days of Lot, days of perversion. And so we're seeing that very thing. Uh, The homosexual has indeed come out of the closet. We have gone from having laws that in all 50 states made the behavior illegal and prohibitive to writing laws making it favorable and acceptable. Uh, We're just like the days of Noah. And so in one sense, we need to be realistic. Uh, Someone called me today and was speaking to me um, about revival and what did I think about revival in America. And I said, well, look, there's three possibilities for America. As I told this brother in Hilton Head, I said, we could go into a dark ages. The whole world could. Uh, There have been times like that in human history. 
Uh, there could be a revival that could sweep America in uh, people across America could be could be fundamentally changed in heart and seek the Lord God again. Or, you know, Jesus could come back. There's only one of three scenarios that are possible. I do know that as Jesus speaks in the Revelation and in other places, the Olivet Discourse, that the end times church will be a lukewarm church. Jesus is not coming back to a fervent, passionate, on fire, uh, I love you with all my heart kind of church, Jesus. He's coming back to a lukewarm church. That's what the scripture prophesies. And lukewarm people are not salt. They're not light. They don't preserve righteousness. They don't dispel darkness. Uh, They have very little influence. And that's the church in America and the church in many places around the world. It's a compromised church. God could certainly revive that church and through a revived church because God has in his sovereignty chosen to preach the gospel through uh, individuals. Uh, He doesn't print the gospel in the clouds. He doesn't have the rock shout it, though he certainly could do that. No, he uses people in which to accomplish his purposes. And uh, lukewarm people don't do that kind of thing. And so lukewarm people don't have the influence in the culture. So you paint a real perspective. You know, sometimes I've said to people, we ought to pray for a revival in America. But if we can't have a revival in America, let's pray for a revival in South Carolina. And if we can't have a revival in South Carolina, well, let's pray for a revival in Beaufort County. And if we can't have a revival in Beaufort County, well, let's at least pray for a revival in our church. And if we can't have a revival in our church, well, let's at least pray for a revival in your home. And if you can't have a revival in your home, well, let's at least pray for a revival in your heart and my heart. You know, what the rest of the world does doesn't dictate what you do. And a revived church comes down to the sum total of revived individuals. Let the judgment, the evaluation, begin with the household of faith, Peter says. It comes down to us as individuals, whether my heart, whether your heart is fervent for Jesus Christ. So when you look at the doom and gloom of the final days before the return of Christ, it doesn't affect what you have to be, nor should it affect your decisions in terms of how you live your life. You know, you see the balance in the parables of Jesus on his return from heaven. Hey, look, you know, Live like he might come tonight. Live like uh, the like he uh, like the thief could break in in the middle of the night. Be be ready. On the other hand, be prepared. Uh, have plenty of oil in your lamps. Like it may be a prolonged period of time. So you don't say, "Well, Jesus is coming back." You know, I think in the next year, so I might as well quit my job. And that's the extreme and perverted and distorted theology of guys like Harold Camping. Uh, you know, you, you don't do that. Uh, You live like he could come back tomorrow. You live like he may not come back for a thousand years. And you live with balance and you live with passion and you live with a clean, clear heart for that's what God has called the people of God to do. Great question. Let's go to our next one, Rick. All right. A listener would like to uh, get some help with a situation they're involved in. The church my husband and I are involved in is getting ready to study the story. It's supposed to be an overview of the Bible. We've started reading it so that we'd have an idea of the material. We're very uncomfortable with the material as it seems to remove any or gloss over anything remotely controversial. 
We have yet to find any theologians that we trust who endorse it, and the churches that we're aware of that have done it are not on the same page as we are theologically. I was just wondering if you had heard of it and or had an opinion of it. This story. Have we talked about that here? I know we've talked about the shack. I don't think we've spoken no, about this story. The story. If it's, you know, it's interesting. That may be a book that I read years ago, like 25 years ago. And okay. it was, a, it was a, a, a narrative account of some of the highlights in Genesis, is, to the best of my recollection. Um, you know, I wasn't even a Christian at the time, but uh, it... Um, it gave you these accounts and narratives from a perspective of just telling a story. And if if nothing else, it kind of piqued my interest a little uh-huh. bit in the Bible. Right. Um, I, I wouldn't use it to study God's Word. Now, that's I'm thinking that's the book that I read like 25 years ago. Yeah, I don't know about this particular work, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll try to make a mental note and Google it and see what's happened. But But let me just say, I think you already have your answer. There's a strong, credible man that you know uh, handle the Word of God accurately, and they have trouble with the book. So if they have trouble with the book, there must be some theological distortion that's in it where it's grossly out of balance. And if it's grossly out of balance, then it's not really edifying. So why why, why pursue it? Um, you know, so I think you have your answer there, and maybe you're— pastor needs to reevaluate and uh step back and so i don't know you know i i um i I, i'll do my best to see what i can find out about it yeah i'm looking at this thing now online it is not what i read okay so this is something new yeah Yeah. I, i i don't know what it is that again though if there's a consensus of good solid christian men who know and teach the bible then give it some thought. But but let me just say, too, that sometimes good people endorse products. I've learned this over the years who haven't really examined the prof- products carefully. So someone came to me uh, just last Sunday in church and they said, well, I heard Chuck Swindoll quote the message. Does that mean he's a bad teacher of the Bible? I said, no, you know. I said, I have to admit, a couple times in a couple messages, I quoted the message because the paraphrase that they used was accurate. Um, but as I began to actually study the message carefully, it's a, um, very, very, very super paraphrased and even distorted, uh, translation. I I didn't even call it a translation. I I think it's a commentary and one that gross, lackly grosses good, solid content. And we evaluated in our course in bibliology, but I think when it first came out, because it came out on a conservative press, namely Nav Press, that historically has been a great press and for the most part has produced really good books. But so didn't Thomas Nelson for a long time, and they're printing, you know, Brian McLaren's works on the emergent church, a man who denies the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's, he's heretical. This one's Zondervan. Okay, well, Zondervan doesn't surprise us because Zondervan has kind of become bilateral and bipolar and a lot of their... Um, expressions of publications. Uh, What's happening more and more are presses and CEOs, sometimes run by unbelievers, are asking what book's going to produce the most money, not what's most accurate. And and it's really interesting, too, if you look at if you go into um, Barnes and Nobles today and you look at some of the major secular presses, 
you know, Scribner and Sons, Harper and Rowe and things like that, and you go back and you look at their history, you discover a lot of these pressers were once great evangelical presses. They started to, for the sole purpose of uh, teaching and preaching and uh, God's literature and Bibles and uh, commentaries and but eventually, with time, they, like many good universities and Christian schools and churches, uh, era crept in, and nobody was really watching at the helm, and they became moderate in their uh, theology and liberal, and now today don't even print religious works unless it's totally apostate. So I think that's I think Zondervan is at a turning point. They're at a turning point right now. In which direction they're going to go, I don't know. Some credible guy whom I trust tells me the CEO is not even a believer. I don't know that I, for sure, but that's what he told me, and I put a lot of stake in what he said and what he has said. But um, just because it's on a conservative press like Nav Press, you know, it's a great organization, but, um, you know, the message sold like wildfire, and the quotations that they had initially were actually decent paraphrases. They selected some verses that were really good paraphrases. But there are other verses that are totally egalitarian in their theology, uh, passages that deal with homosexuality are left out. And I could go on and on and on. And if you're interested in studying in a careful evaluation of the message, uh, get section six of my course on bibliology. The course is about 500 pages long. And in section six, we do an evaluation of all the major English translations from A to Z. And um, we look at the message in careful, careful detail. So... Anyway, all right. Our next caller would like to know what you think of altar calls for people to go forward when they're sick or need healing or need elders to pray over them. Well, there's nothing necessarily wrong with them. Sometimes um, they're out of balance or distorted or or people measure uh, the results of a church service by an altar call. Listen, a pastor may preach his heart out in a spirit-filled way and nobody comes forward. Does it mean he's failed? Sometimes, you know, no one will come forward in Community Bible Church and people come up and they like they feel sorry for me. <laughs> they don't feel sorry for me. I just did what God wanted me to do. Um, and the real harvest is not at the end of the service. It's at the end of, it's at the, end of the age. Um, and sometimes, too, you plant seeds in the hearts of your people and there are seasons of fruitfulness. And I've learned this as a pastor. There are times when we go through cycles where there's just tons of fruit and a dozen people a week for three or four weeks in a row get saved. And then there will be times when you're just, um, you know, plowing and uh, cultivating the soil and planting seeds. And you bear fruit in season as uh, Psalm 1 teaches, but I've seen altar calls abused. Listen, I could get people down front every week. Uh, you make a um, uh, an altar call broad enough, general enough, uh, you could get in some ch- places and conferences hundreds of people down. Um, it depends what you're you're trying to accomplish, and I've seen people manipulate crowds, and hundreds of people have come down, and when it's all over, you say, well, where's the lasting fruit? Is there anybody, you know, when when I've been to places where 800,000 people come down and then, you know, it's all done and over and you as a pastor, other pastors will say, was anybody added to the local assembly? Was anybody baptized? Was anybody saved? And you can't find anybody? We say, well, what what happened? Um, So, you know, again, it depends what, you know, God is leading the preacher to do. And is it wrong for people to come down and have special needs for prayer? Well, no. And 
But, you know, there are some people who will come down every week, sometimes because they're sensitive of heart, sometimes because they're living in guilt and, you know, can't seem to get out of it because of their refusal to repent. And, you know, uh, you can really go wacko on this whole thing. So the, the altar call has in many places been grossly distorted. There are times in human history, especially during the Second Great Awakening, there are times of real distortion with the altar call, and some threw the baby out with the bath all, baby with the bath water, and said, "Well, then just stop them all together." And um, that isn't always correct either. So, good question, fair question. Let's go to the next one. Rick. All right, uh, our next person writes: During the eleven o'clock service this past Sunday, you made a reference that we should be buried, not cremated, and my wife wondered. Uh, my wife and I wondered why. Um, well, go back and listen to the message again. I tried to make a distinction between cremation, resumation, and burial. Resumation is a more recent process. It's legal in eight states in America. Eventually, it will be in all 50 where they boil your body to death. Uh, you're dead. They boil you under high pressure using a certain substance, and when it's all over, man, you're just liquid. Bone, hair, everything is just totally dissolved. In fact, you can water your plants with it when you're done. Uh, then there is cremation where they burn you in ash, and they, you can do what you want with the ash, flush it down the toilet, you know, sprinkle it in the ocean, put it on some mountaintops. Man, I've heard everything what people do with ashes. And then there's burial. The biblical way to deal with the dead is burial. Uh, every example in the New Testament is always by example. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 metaphorically uses burial uh, as a seed that looks dead, um, dried out, you put it in the ground and from it comes life. And Paul likens that when you bury a saint, you are in faith, believing what God promised, he will raise that saint from the dead. So go back and listen again. The answer is there uh, to the sermon last Sunday, Genesis 50. It's already posted and up online. Listen to what I said. And I walked through about eight or nine passages that were referenced that will be there for you that you can go up and look at them individually, and you will see, you know, God's way is burial. That's what Christians should be doing. We shouldn't be cremating our dead. Listen to the message. It's online. All right. Our next uh, writer authors this. He says, Dr. Berge, I've, re- I've heard recently that there are groups that say the New American Standard was translated from inferior copies of the original Greek for New Testament by Westcott Hort, and that the Westcott Hort left off words and changed some words. The King James Version was translated from the majority Greek known as the Byzantine. They claim the King James Version is the only real translation to use. Would you please give explanations about this, please? I've been using the NAS and will continue, but need help in this area. Well, to give you the long, long answer, again, go to the course on Bibliology. It's in Section 6. Uh, there's about 100-plus pages in that section. There's tapes that go with it where I evaluate all the English translations and deal with this issue in detail. It is true that Westcott and Horst were, Hort were using manuscripts that were of an earlier date. Uh, the King James were uh, translators were using manuscripts that were copies that were came much later, and you, people get into debate which ones are the most accurate. By the way, this is the 400th year of the King James Bible, and you can get the anniversary edition. I think Oxford Press has created one where you can get an identically uh, printed King James Bible to the 1611. 
uh, in the preface of the 1611 translation, something that King James-only people have never read uh, or in ignorance they've overlooked it. They add, listen, we believe there will be many more manuscripts that will be uncovered. There will be many more uh, linguistic achievements that will be made that will produce in the future more accurate translations. Read it. It's in the preface. I quote it in our course on bibliology. Um, They acknowledge that there were some words they weren't sure as to the meaning, what we call hapax legomenas, words that are used only once in the Bible. So you can't compare it to other verses to get maybe a fuller nuance of its meaning. And so they, we think it means this, and so they translated it accordingly with notes. Maybe it could have meant this. Well, with time, we have more literature from the first century and ancient literature from biblical times, and uh, the meaning of words, you know, became much, much more clear. Some people will create these straw men, the King James versus NAS issue, and they'll say, oh, you know, all the verses in the blood of Christ are taken out. Well, actually, the truth is, is that the term blood appears 98 times in the King James. It appears 97 times in the New American Standard and all your newer translations. One verse is in dispute, Colossians 1.14 where blood is found in one ancient, uh, in, in the manuscripts of the King James and not in some of the older manuscripts. It might be that the copyist was uh, using the parallel text of Ephesians 1.7, where it was found, but just a few verses later in Colossians 1.20, it talks about salvation through his blood. So they create this straw man that all the blood of Christ is taken out of the new translations, and that's all it is, is a straw man. The other text they often use is they'll say, well, all the verses on hell are taken out of the Bible. Oh, really? Um, The truth is, is that there's one place in Mark 9, the New American Standard, unlike the NIV, contains all three references to hell, but two are in brackets indicating that some of the older manuscripts don't contain it. Um, but it's found in all the manuscripts in Mark 9:48, where he speaks of the worm that never dies and the fire that is never quenched. All the other references to hell are absolutely identical. Look, if we want to create that game, we could say, well, the King James takes the deity of Christ out of the Bible because in Jude 25, the phrase through our Lord through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is admitted in the King James, a clear reference to his deity, but found in all the newer translations because it's found in all the older manuscripts. Uh, I wouldn't do that. Look, when it, you take all the wind out of the Bible, there's 20,000 lines of Scripture. There's only about 40 lines or 400 words that are in dispute, that are uncertain. They affect absolutely nothing doctrinally, theologically, and what's not found in some of those texts is found in a parallel text. And um, I get into that whole thing on the course uh, on bibliology. Listen to Section 6 if you really have a desire to study it. Uh, But God has preserved his word and carefully guarded it. And so I affirm it as the infallible, inerrant word of God. We're out of time today. Uh, Thanks for joining us for the Bible line. God willing, we will be back here again very soon to dialogue over the only book God wrote, the Holy Bible. Have a great day.